Word for the Week is a podcast of Canaan Community Church, dedicated to the balance of Scripture for the wholeness of life. Learn more at CanaanCommunity.org. John chapter 18 is where we are. So last night, Kevin Kendall gets a call or a text and said, Hey, Kev, you got a hinge? And he said, What are you looking for? I said, The bigger, the better. So this is why you call a farmer, you know, say, you know, you get a big gate hinge. So the reason I have this hinge is because this is chapter 18 of John. This is chapter 18. Hinges, hinge point. If there was a gate on this, the gate would be opened or closed depending, and it would all depend on what? Your hinge point. But we use the word hinge in another way too. We say things hinge on something. We have hinge points in history. We've got some real biggies like uh, Archduke Franz uh, Ferdinand of Austria. Anybody remember him? Well, no, because he was before our time. But this guy got shot in the beginning of the 20th century and it sent the century into two world wars. All on a gunshot. Hinged on that. Um, the guy who goes to the local bar and, and decides he's going to drive home uh, a little too drunk, and the accident that happens hinges on that decision. The fact that uh, uh, we have the advances in science hinges on Albert Einstein being born at some particular time. The fact we're in this room at all hinges on what Christ decided with the cross. And that's where we really are today. And, and this hinge point sets dominoes or timelines into, into action. And in chapter 18, uh, it, it's so graphic that I made a little graph to go along with it because there's actually two hinge points. And true to what uh, John tends to do, they are opposites. And the opposites are what are going to teach us what's going on here. And chapter 18 is almost like the, uh, the uh, action side of a, of a good movie. It, it just starts this back and forth. It goes, Jesus, Peter, Jesus, Peter, Jesus, Peter, Jesus, Pilate. And there's a whole lot that happens there. Hinging on one event, but we'll look at that as we go through it. But we need backstory. Why? Is because this happened in real life. Things began to happen in real life for real reasons. And when we realize it here, you know what that does for us is that when we look at our lives and we say, you know what, God still does real life things for real reasons. So what's going on in here? How does all the backstories work? Well, let's Let's start and we'll go through with Jesus' timeline, the, the white line up there. And Jesus uh, has left the upper room. Everything's just kind of flowing along there. They cross the Kidron Valley, across the brook. They go up to the Olive Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus has or Judas has found his opportunity. Now is the time to strike. They're away from the city. They're away from prying eyes, and we're about to hit, hit the hinge point. And the hinge point is really not Judas. 
It's what they do after the reaction to what Judas has put in motion himself. Verse 2, and of course, you'll notice there's only two things to follow along if you have uh, your guide sheets. is going to be the chapter itself and this graph. Starting verse 2, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests, band of soldiers, so who would the soldiers be? What nationality are the soldiers? Romans. Okay, we just want to make sure we get that down. The soldiers and some of the chief priests and the Pharisees were there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Every word in there is loaded with a backstory. What's going on here? Well, first of all, the word band would actually be in the original Greek, spira. And spira technically means one-thirtieth of a legion, which means that there should have been 500 Roman soldiers making this little operation happen. That's a lot of muscle, isn't it? 500 of the best trained warriors in the world at the time. And these soldiers were coming with lanterns. And that's not enough light, so they have torches. And they don't just have that, they have weapons. And we start asking, well, for one guy that we know as the Prince of Peace, that's an awful lot of muscle, that's a lot of weapons, that's a lot of equipment, a lot of people. What's going on? Well, let's go back to the time. The arresting party, as you people so aptly said, were Roman soldiers. If you know the history of Judah at this time, there have been a number of guerrilla attacks of some type or another. There is actually even a... Um, um, insurrectionist, a, a zealot by the name of Jesus around at the time. There's a lot of these, and, and see, they know they didn't have the firepower and the muscle, so they did what um, less equipped armies do, guerrilla attacks. So they would wait for a column or some a cohort of Roman soldiers to be somewhere, isolated, and then they would uh, ambush them and attack them. And if they were outgunned by the Romans, then they would uh, just go back into the shadows. So you had this fight or flight thing going on all the time. Either run away and hide or lay in ambush. So what's a smart commander going to do? He's always expecting fight or flight. So he's going to bring a lot of muscle, a lot of weapons, and a lot of light, because he's going to need the light to either find those who took flight or those who were about to fight. So it makes a lot of sense what's going on here, and it's important that we know this. Verse 4, then Jesus, now keep this in mind, these guys, are for them, this is just another insurrection coming down. Hey, we got one of those guys, it's Jesus, I think he's a zealot, I don't know. I'm a Roman soldier, all I know it's trouble. So I'm going out in the middle of the night 
ready for yet another black ops thing going on here. I'm going to take down some other insurrectionists out there. So imagine when this happens. They're either going to fight or they're going to fly away. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, does what? Came forward. What? That's not the way it's supposed to work. He came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? <laughs> what? This guy's coming forward and, you know, and actually addressing us like this? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. I am he. Admitting. Judas, who betrayed him, who was standing with them. When Jesus said uh, to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, this is in John for a very particular reason. The other fellows are laying down accounts, but John's really about proving to you and me that this is no ordinary person. This is the Messiah. Here's yet another sign. Why did they fall down? We're not really told, but there was something about Jesus Christ that apparently 500 plus hardened warriors went back on their heels and fell down. It must have been impressive, whatever it was. So he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth again. And Jesus answers, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go, his disciples. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those who had uh, that you gave to me, I have lost not one. Question, all these people showing up to arrest one man, who's in control here? Yeah, really weird though, isn't it? One guy, he's the one getting arrested, and he's the one in control. So they go ahead and they arrest him, and Jesus is brought to the house of Annas, and now, this is very important to watch. This is almost like the Jewish mafia going on here. Annas, in this religious culture, has a monopoly on religious leadership. He himself was high priest for a number of years. His five sons were high priests. And now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is high priest. Man, he's keeping it in the family. And those who would detract from them have this way of disappearing. Yeah, he held quite a monopoly going on here. And now Jesus is standing before him, the most important figure. He's the guy who makes and breaks kings. This is one intimidating man to be standing in front of. How does it go? Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus. And it's interesting because this is in itself a nuance we'd miss in the English. Annas was not high priest at this time. Caiaphas was. But Annas carried so much weight that when you were talking to Annas, he would tell Caiaphas what to do. So in effect, you're still talking to this high priest. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all the Jews come together. 
I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? This isn't just Jesus being insolent or uh, uncooperative. This takes us back into what Jewish law itself said. The Jewish scholars of the time wrote this. Our true law does not inflict the penalty of death upon a sinner by his own confession. You could not convict somebody by questioning them like this. This whole thing was illegal. And when he says, why are you questioning me? He's saying, why are you breaking the law? Because that's what was going on. 22, when he had said this, this is the response he gets. When he said these things, one of the officers standing there by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? How do you like that in a court? You're not out of order. You say something within your rights and you get slapped across the face. Hmm, doesn't sound very legal, does it? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Once again, an illegal move. There was a way to handle this if he was saying something wrong, and that wasn't it. So what happens? Annas doesn't have an answer for this. See, he was using intimidation and it wasn't working. A lesser man, he might have extorted some kind of a confession out of him, but... No. So that's why verse 24 says, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Oh, didn't work for my illegal move. Caiaphas, your turn. John doesn't even bother talking about Caiaphas. Two uh, locations in quick succession. Caiaphas, and the next thing, he's at the headquarters of the Roman leaders. So we move from the Jewish religious leaders very quickly to the most powerful military leader, Pontius Pilate. Now we know something about Pontius Pilate before this ever really transpires, don't we? Because we've got four Gospels and we learn some stuff from the other Gospels as well. And Matthew 27, 19 says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, that's Pilate, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with this righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Pilate, this was like, I've been warned off. Now, think about this for a second. Judah is a conquered land. Rome is the greatest power on earth. Pilate is a Roman governor. What does Pilate get to eat for breakfast? And everybody goes, anything he wants. Because, you know, that's a, he's, this, he's this powerful, anything he wants should be happening here. But watch how the situation unfolds. Even though he's this, this powerful governor, he tries to push back the whole incident back to the Jewish leaders. They maneuver him so he has to give a formal hearing. He gives a formal hearing and then says, this man, I find no guilt in him as governor. They somehow still twist it so he has to convict someone he just said was innocent. And then in the last ditch effort, he tries using their own tradition of releasing someone uh, from judgment. 
And then they force him to release somebody who they know is a criminal instead. It's like, wow, how did that happen? I'll tell you how this happened. This. There were hinge points in Pilate's life. Hinge points. How so? Once again, just a little more backstory. Rome had two classes of provinces. They took all the world they conquered, divided it into provinces. You had those places that said, this isn't so bad, let's cooperate with Rome. So they didn't have to put soldiers there at all. So those people who did that were left to govern themselves. They didn't have Roman soldiers in the area. And then they would report back and forth to Rome. Now, if you were a troublesome place and you didn't want to be under Rome, then the emperor would take direct control over those areas and then he would have his, his um, governor or procreator, pro procreator. Uh, I probably said that wrong. Somebody else can tell me later. But anyway, a ruling guy in the middle, and he would then report directly to the emperor himself, and the people would have their rulers who also would report directly to the emperor. So the emperor would keep these places under very, very um, strict observance. And so Tiberius, being the emperor at this time, here's what happened. They sent Pilate very early in his career. He was sent down to this Middle Eastern territory, and, and there was actually a few provinces in that area. He had no appreciation, no, uh, just total disdain for the Jewish religion and total disdain for the Jewish God. Didn't want to know anything about them. And what happened is that at least three times it put him in direct conflict with the Jewish people. I mean, the type of things people are dying and there's major riots and everything else that's going on. That doesn't go well with the emperor because uh, in the whole Roman doctrine of peace, the idea is get them under control and then just use as much control as you need. But here is this guy causing major confrontations in the, in the whole Judah province. And so he was being watched by Tiberius. Now here's where things really went south. Is Samaria was a relatively peaceful place. Uh, the, the emperor didn't have uh, problems with Samaria. But a minor rebellion, just right around the time of Christ, there was a minor rebellion in Samaria. And Pilate went in and used such brutality that he was recalled to Rome. Now that's, that's pretty severe, right? When you get a Roman emperor, what these guys did to people, calling you because you were too brutal. But he got called back, so it was kind of like the th three strikes in your route, you know. So he's walking a fine line. He had made hinge points. He had made choices all along the way. And so here's where he finds himself now. The Jewish leaders know that he is walking the razor's edge here and that he no longer has the political equity to do what he wants. So they get what they want. He got backed into a corner. He did not want to be in. How did it happen? Hinge points. All these little things along the way. So he was 
out of control somewhat with the Jewish leaders. How does it go with Jesus? Well, let's pick up the story there. He's interrogating Jesus and he says, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world, so you are a king. See if we could nail him here, at least he would have something, because that, um, that would really mean automatic execution. You say that I am a king. Now watch this. Here we go into evangelism mode. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He turned his interrogation into a moment of evangelizing. Absolutely amazing. Pilate, the only thing left to say is, what is truth? Question, who's in control here? The interrogator or the one being interrogated? John wants us to realize this on this timeline. Right from the hinge point, Jesus was always true to himself, always true to his purpose, and just that's the way it flowed. He was always in control. Even when it doesn't look like it, there's the lesson from John. God is always in control. The Son of Man was always in control. Christ was always in control. The hinge point from the garden straight up for Jesus. Now the other person who's really the counterpart in the story is Peter. So let's jump in on Peter's timeline. Let's go back to the garden. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now that word sword, backstory again, kind of interesting. The word sword just means a short-bladed instrument. It could be a dagger. Mainly it was used for a knife for cutting off flesh. Now see if you guys put together kind of what I ended up. A knife that cuts off flesh. What was Peter's vocation? What did he do for a living? He was a fisherman. So what kind of a knife that cuts flesh do you think he had? Well, one thing, he had a fishing knife. He had a fishing knife. Now, let's see how good your memories are. How many Roman soldiers were at, came to the garden? 500. So, get this now. Here's this fella. 500 of the best trained warriors in the world, along with temple priests. Now, and he's holding them off with a fishing knife. Now, that's something you tell your grandchildren. There I was with my fishing knife, you know, holding off a Roman cohort. This is amazingly brave, amazingly stupid, but amazingly brave. There's a hinge point going on here. Now, we know that it doesn't go well for Peter, but why? Let's, let's just follow his track a little bit. He too goes, goes to um, Annas' house. He's following. He's with a companion. 
Now, tradition assumes it's John, but not necessarily so. One thing we know for sure, let's just say it's John, then John was um, well known by the high priest's house for some reason, in some way. So here comes this Nazarene following in the context that he's coming to see what happens to Jesus in this high priest's house. He knows that he's a disciple. There's no question that this fellow is a disciple of, of, of this Jesus that they're questioning. They're met by, uh, actually he gets uh, let right in the house and then Peter is ushered in because he is a friend of John and he's being ushered in. And there's a little girl answering the door, letting people in and out. And the way the wording goes is neutral curiosity. When this little girl asks, she says, are you, it's basically, are you part of this group too? Are you with this guy? Are you part of this whole thing? So it's, it's very neutral. It's very non-threatening. And yet this guy who held off 500 soldiers with his fishing knife stands in contrast to Jesus because before the 500 soldiers, Jesus said, I am he. And before this little girl, Peter says, I am not. I am not. But why? Wow, that's, that's quite a change. Hinge point. Back in the garden, the only violence carried out by the disciples was by Peter in his fishing night. And he cut off the ear of a servant, and the servant was from this very household. It may be not so surprising he says, I am not, because he's in some kind of hot water there if he gets figured out. Isn't it amazing what we as human beings will do sometimes not to be found out? What have you done that maybe at some point you just assume other people didn't know? You kind of cover it up. Something that you don't want known. It's amazing what we'll do not to be found out. Hinge point is the thing that was done in the first place, right? So then Peter melds into the background and he mingles with a group warming themselves by the fire. And they look at him and they say, you must be with that guy. Now I want you to think about this for a sec. He came with a Nazarene and they were questioning a Nazarene and they had their own way of dressing. He's standing there by the fire dressed like a Nazarene and he goes, oh no, I'm not with them. How silly can you look? Right? When you're covering up, it's just like, who ate the last piece of cake? I don't know. You know, it's that kind of a thing going on. He's hinge point, and he's still trying not to be found out. But that's not the climax. See, you start with the, the little girl. No, she's just curious. Then you move on to these guys that are kind of suspicious. Haven't I seen you with Kelly DeTramp somewhere? Yep. That type of thing. But now the climax is this. A relative of Malchus says this, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Now the wording has now changed. It is, it is a challenge. It is, 
I have witnessed you in the garden. Try and deny it. And it's not surprising what the response is. Mark 14, 71. But Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Desperate to cover things up. What do we do when we just don't want something to be known? We raise the ante, don't we? We just get louder. We just think of raising the voice maybe makes a difference. I'm not lying. I, you know, may the temple fall on me. He's gone from holding off a Roman cohort with his fishing knife to calling curses on himself by the very person he claims to be following. All on a hinge point. It happened here, and it went down after that. Just a down hinge point for this poor guy. But was it really all so bad? I mean, okay, so we know that Jesus wasn't too favorable about that. Here's uh, Peter cutting off people's ears, and he says, Peter, don't do that. It's not nice. But was it really so bad? I mean, when you think of it, Peter was giving his all. It was like a suicide mission. But the question would come, and this really fits in with the church today, if Peter was giving his all, what was the all he was actually giving? What was the all he was actually giving? Backstory, and you'll see where I'm coming from with this. The damage was this, starting out. All these soldiers are showing up because this is just another insurrection. This is just another guy promoting hate under another name. It's just another thing going on here, another religious fanatic. The only thing that would change that would be at the hinge point, how he reacted. Jesus reacted, I am he. Peter struck out with a knife, just like everybody else would do. Just like any other zealot. Just like anyone else that's in the world with whatever the new cause is. See, what I'm getting at here is Peter would give us all, but you know what he was giving was all of his old self. Now, I don't mean laying down at the cross. I mean he was going to serve God as best he could using his old self. You know that part we say we're supposed to bury at baptism? That old self. Aren't you glad that people in the church today don't try to serve with their old self? You know, like um, the guy who's learned all the political tricks because he's been out in the, in the world system and then decides, well, I'll just take them and start using them for the Lord. Or how about this? The savvy businessman who has really done well in business, so he's going to turn, turn the church into a business model that's really going to have some effect. Or how about somebody who always was a talented speaker? Man, they had a natural charisma. So they take on the pulpit. And now it's by their charisma, not so much by what they're saying. 
whole idea of using your old self, we do it all the time. And you know, the result of it is, is we're just another version of the world. We pull a Peter and it just doesn't work. It doesn't work to be the world and the church at the same time. Just another religion, just another moral code, just another bunch of people meeting in a building and establishing, just another. Romans 12.2 says, this is the way around that. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be just another. Don't be Peter with your fishing knife. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed. Start thinking in ways the world does not think. Why? That by the testing, by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. In the human condition, let me tell you, as we try and do it with our old self, you don't even know what God's will is. You don't even know the name of the game as far as the objective of what churches are supposed to do, let alone how. Only the Spirit-filled can be Spirit-led. Only the Spirit-filled can possibly be spirit-led. How so? Well, let's back up. I read you Romans 12, 2. Here's Romans 12, 1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Depending on your translation, but you know what the actual transliteration, word for word of that is? The logical divine service of you. The logical divine service. Now here's the thing. God's priorities are not logical to the human mind most of the time. They're not logical. The only way for them to be logical is to have a transformed mind. Then they start making sense to you and me. If you try and do the God thing with the um, old self, you inevitably, you'll pull a Peter and how did it end for Peter in this case? Seemed like such a good action in the beginning, but Matthew 26, 74, 75, just summarized. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered, and he went out and wept bitterly. That's what happens when the old self tries to do God stuff. It ends up in something pretty bitter. Thankfully for Peter, for us, Christ is greater than our hinge points. And Peter's redeemed at the seashore and he's filled by God's Spirit in the upper room. But the mark of this fateful hinge, this one, remains. Why? Why does the Gospel have it in there? Because it's a warning to the rest of us. This is what happens when it's the wrong hinge point. Everyone's spiritual path hinges on critical moments. Everyone's spiritual path hinges on critical moments. Critical moments hinge on your decisions. And our decisions hinge on the conditions of our mind. Conformed or transformed. Your mind is one or the other. 
conformed or transformed. Well, I'm a professing Christian. Good for you. Conformed or transformed. Still a question. Whole thing with a hinge. It, uh, it works on a pin, doesn't it? Now, if the, that pin were a, a bread wrapper, it wouldn't be much of a hinge, would it? The quality is going to depend on what that hinge pin is really made of. Is your hinge pin in the decisions you're making, even as you try and follow Christ, is it based on your old self? Just you and your fishing knife? Or is it based on a transformed self that's ready to do some kingdom work? One or the other. Because until we're transformed, it, that's when God's decisions on things and His will starts to become logical. Eternal life, it hinges on one thing, Christ in you and you in Christ. Do everything else you want, but if that's not where you end up, Christ in you and you in Christ, a growing connection, a living connection, the rest really doesn't matter too much. Hinge points. Now, you ready for this? This will melt your brain. Did you think that right now might be a hinge point? Right this second. Right this moment as you're sitting there in your seat. In a moment, you know, I'm going to have Jim come up and wrap us up in prayer and, and ask him to take us into a kind of a fresh breath of the Spirit before we dismiss. But you know what? There will be a hinge point. When Jim comes up here and prays, you will either hear him with your old self, and there's lots of old selves in churches, or you'll hear him with a transformed self. And when he's done, you'll have taken a breath, a fresh breath of the Holy Spirit, and the transformation will continue, or you will go out of here the same way you came in, your old self. Just Peter with his fishing knife. But we don't have to. The, the time of prayer is an opportunity to know. It's an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to transform. You can make it a moment where you rest in God and God rests in you, or you cannot. Nobody can force you. It'll be your choice. Wonder what that hinge point will be, even at this very moment.